And um, coming back to life after Easter, uh, Easter is always a blur for me, you know, getting through the Good Friday and the Easter Sunday, but it is always so wonderful. I always love the uh, the services and the programs that we do on those two days. Um, it's just a favorite of the year where we get to go kind of theater of the mind and move into the the, the minds and the sandals of those first followers of Jesus. And so now coming back out of that, we're going to be returning to the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody remember the Sermon on the Mount? God, it already seems like such a long time since we talked about the Sermon on the Mount. It's only been two weeks. But here we are trying to get back into it. We're just about at the end. I think maybe we've only got um, maybe a couple more Sundays on the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, we'll have to break in again for Mother's Day. Um, but we'll, we'll get done in the next two to three weeks. Last time we spoke, three weeks ago now, two weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Matthew 7, where Jesus is talking about the narrow gate and the narrow way. And we spent a little time talking about that. But I want to pick up there, because I think it really connects with the next uh, target passage that we're going to talk about here this morning. But going back a bit, Matthew 7, starting at verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So when we read a a passage like that, where do we immediately go? You know. We immediately go to heaven and hell, don't we? I mean, I can't tell you how many paintings I've seen, even sculptures. Marion and I were in Sedona ages ago, and there was this really cool sculpture in in a... uh, in a gallery that was a sculpture of the narrow way, you know, and I don't know if you've seen that kind of painting where this, this broad, this narrow way, and a few people are walking on it and they're going up into some kind of heavenly celestial kind of image, and then there's a bunch that are falling the other way. You know, it was a really cool sculpture, but theologically I think it's all wrong, <laughs> absolutely all wrong. And we've talked about this here before. We automatically go to heaven and hell because we as Christians, as Western Christians, have been taught to focus on the afterlife. Most often at the expense of this one. You know, this is just a veil of tears. This is just something we have to endure so that we can get to our reward. And if we don't screw up here, then, you know, we're going to have good times later on. But we were just talking about enjoying the ride. Where is there enjoyment of the ride if we're so focused on the next life? Now, Jews are just the opposite. They focus on this life exclusively. They don't even have a doctrine about the next life. As a Jew, you can believe whatever you want to believe. And Jews do. They're all over the place. They can believe in reincarnation. They can believe in heaven and hell the way we do. They can believe that the wicked just wink out of existence or annihilated at death if they haven't gotten it right in this life. They can believe all sorts of things because there is no standing doctrine in Judaism because they're not focused there. That's God's domain. God is all gracious and benevolent and and trustworthy. If we just do our job here, which is to learn to live between heaven and earth, to learn to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven, to merge the two, to be able to see life with the oneness that is unseen beneath the diversity, and then to treat each other with that oneness and that unity and that connection, then everything is going to take care of itself. We don't have to worry about that sort of thing. And so... Jews, Jesus, and the kingdom, the context is always here and now. Never there then. Never the afterlife. And we have to remember that. The English translation that I just read 
lends itself to helping us to create this image of the narrow way being to heaven and the broad way being to hell. But the Aramaic language can help us to uncreate that image and to bring it back to something that makes more sense from the point of view of what Jesus was trying to get across. We went over this two weeks ago, but just quickly here. The word that is translated as small, that small gate, right? The word there in Aramaic is katina. It really means thin, frail, subtle. I like that. Subtle, delicate, ethereal, kind of airy. You can see through it, transparent. In other words, it's going to be really easy to miss. It's not something that's going to hit you in the face. It's going to be something that you're going to blow right past unless you're paying attention, unless your sensibilities have turned a corner and you're able to see things beneath the surface. The narrow way, the word narrow there, alitza, really means compelling. It means pressing. It means urgent. It also means constricted, which is the meaning that was extracted of all of those meanings extracted for the English translation. But think about those other ones, compelling, pressing, urgent. It's kind of like the rapids in a river, right? When the force of the river gets constricted, then you've got the rapids. And they're tumultuous, and they're all over the place. Or as you put your you know, little jet nozzle on your hose, and now the same water pressure is shooting out urgently, compellingly. Whereas if you take it off, it's just kind of coming out the hose. This is the idea of this word, alitza. And so narrow takes on a different connotation, a different meaning when we put it in that place. Gate, tara, is a flow or the opening between worlds or over boundaries. So flowing over boundaries or an opening between boundaries has to do with what the gate is representing. And the way, urha, is a path, but it's also a manner of living life. So if we take all of these and put them together, how does this change Jesus' meaning here from the one that we just read? Well, take a look at this Aramaic translation. Um, still, Matthew 7.13. Subtle and delicate is the gate that lets us flow over our boundaries. Compelling and urgent is the way that leads to the connectedness of all. It's not a way for the faint-hearted for those unwilling to use their full inner fire and passionate desire to find it. Wow, that's a big change. What's he basically saying here? Well, the first point he's making is, is that we're going to miss this gate completely. We're going to miss this opening, this flow over boundaries, this flow between worlds, between heaven and earth. We're going to miss it completely if we're still looking for something that's spectacular, something that's huge, miraculous, or something that's institutional. If we're not going to look any farther than the institution of our church, of our faith, of our religion, of the doctrines of those religion, of that religion, of the dogma, if we're looking for something rational, even, logical, something that we can comprehend with our minds and put outlines around, handles on. We're going to miss this path. In other words, if we are approaching the gate with our egoic mind that does all those things, doesn't it? Is always looking to justify itself, always looking for the spectacular, always looking for advantage and survival, always thinking rationally, dualistically, separating things, comparing them one to another. If we're going to approach this, this gate, this trailhead, that way, we're going to walk right past it. We will miss it, Jesus is saying. 
And Jesus is the gate. We talked about this. John 10.10. Jesus is the gate, the door of the sheepfold. And the only legitimate way to come in and out of his sheepfold and out to pasture is through his gate, through himself. And who is Jesus? He's not just telling us this. He's living this. Jesus is humble. He's unassuming. Isaiah tells us he's unattractive. You, you wouldn't like the way he looks, right? Which is hard for us to imagine. He's small. We talked about the fact that the average Judean man Galilean man in the first century was 5'2 and weighed 135 pounds. He would look like a hobbit to us if we met him. How would we be able to deal with that if we come at it with our typical egoic Western mind especially? But even in Jesus' day, it was no different. If you approach me this way, he's saying, you're going to walk right past me. You're not going to give me a second glance. You're going to step over me like the homeless person that you stepped over on the way to church is basically what he's telling us. I'm not casting any aspersions here, of course. But this is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Remember the, uh, the great, I forget which Star Wars it was, where Luke Skywalker finally meets Yoda for the first time, and he's been told about this great Jedi knight and warrior who's going to teach him the way of the Force. And here's this little imp, and he doesn't even want to give him the time of day, Right? I mean, these are archetypes that have come down to us. Yes, it's here in, in the scripture, but other stories as well capture the fact that we are looking for something spectacular when the most spectacular things seem mundane. And if we can't find the spectacular in the everyday moments of our lives, we're going to walk right past the truth, right past our chance for enlightenment, right past the path that leads to life that Jesus is talking about. The second point that he's making here is that if we won't accept this way as being difficult, then we're not going to persevere on this way as it becomes difficult. Remember, the way is compelling. It's urgent. It's constricted. It's going to be like the rapids. You know, it's fine going down the, the river in your raft when it's all nice and peaceful, but you hit the rapids, and of course, that's supposed to be the fun part. But it's also the, the scary part, right? It's the part that's hard to navigate. It's the part where there is some real risk here. And we realize that. This way of Jesus is going to be like the rapids. It's going to be like the constriction of the hose that is going to be compelling us forward. The word in Mark 112, I believe it is, where Jesus is going out into the wilderness for his time, following this way that he's trying to get us to follow. The word is ekbalo in the Greek, which means to compel or impel. It's usually translated as to drive, that the scripture, that the spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. But this is not a, a, a pleasant or passive verb. This verb has urgency behind it. This, ber- this verb even has some violence behind it. Jesus was compelled into the wilderness. This is the idea that he's trying to get across here. It's not going to be easy, folks. He's telling us that over and over again. If you're looking for the easy way, then it's not going to be this one. And if you're not willing to let this take all of you, if there's anything you're holding in reserve, well, God bless you, but you can't follow where I'm going. There's something else at, at, at work here. At the end of his time in the wilderness, which was more than 40 days, I guarantee you, 
he is exhausted, right? He is at the end of himself by this descent into the wilderness. We're not going to be able to accept this if we still think that there's any passivity to this journey. If there's anything vicarious about it, that someone else can take it for us and we can kind of hold on to coattails, Jesus is telling us it's not going to work that way. If we really want oneness with the Father, if we really want to experience life as kingdom, then this is going to be what the path looks like. So I suppose the question would be, who's up for that? (laughs) See? And a few of you are. But have we really counted the cost, which is another image that Jesus talks about? Have you really counted the cost for all of this? You know, Have you really taken stock of what this is going to require of you? And then try to draw a crowd around a message like that. See, it's very difficult. If you think about the churches right now, more of them are on the more of the prosperity kind of end of things, where everything is a direct ascent to the place that we want to get. And Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. There's going to be a descent before the ascent. But it's very difficult for us to be able to get a lot of traction because only a very few people are going to even want to talk about this. I mean, look at the numbers here. There's very few of us. And then how many of us are really digging in and finding out just how deep the rabbit hole goes? It's not what we really want to hear. We want to hear something that's kinder and gentler, don't we? And if we have an unwillingness, if we have an inability, or if we have an ignorance of, because the church has done a very poor job of really giving us Jesus' message as it is. They've they've not educated us. They've not shown us what this is all about. So if we are unwilling, if we have an inability to, or an ignorance of learning to actually step aside from our egoic mind, which is causing all the blockage here, then we're not going to be able to move into this place Jesus is talking about. If we have an unwillingness or an inability or an ignorance of really engaging the process actively, not passively, not thinking that someone else can do the heavy lifting for us, if we're still expecting people to carry the load for us, if we're still somehow thinking we don't have to make this descent, we don't have to go into that scary dark place, then Jesus is saying we can't follow him either. See, we egoic humans with our self-awareness and our conscious minds, along with our culture and even along with our institutional church, are all focused exteriorly on our accomplishments, on what we can do out there as the litmus test of our, our own identity, our acceptability, Have we passed the line so that now we are accepted by God? We measure all this exteriorly in our accomplishment, on our roles, in our sense of survival and security, control and power. Those are the ways that we measure how well we're doing on this spiritual journey so often. But Jesus, as the gate, is standing in stark opposition to all that kind of thinking. He's trying to give us a whole different way of looking at this. And think about the images that he uses. He's always holding up the child as the image of kingdom. The child is the opposite of everything that we're talking about, everything that we hold dear. All the celebrities that we lionize in our culture are the opposite of the child. And yet Jesus says, unless you become like one of these... This stuff is just going to elude you. You can't possibly go where I'm going. 
He takes off his, his clothes and washes his, his disciples' feet, does the most disgusting slave labor that a Jew can imagine in the first century, trying to get this point across. And then from there he goes to the cross and dies an ignominious death, a horrible death, a humiliating death. He doesn't shy away from every possible image of trying to get us to understand what this looks like. All his sayings, those hyperbolic sayings, those paradoxical sayings, trying to get us to understand it's the last that go first and the first that go last. Do you understand what I'm trying to tell you here? If we can't see the value and start to value a humble person, the humility, the unassuming nature of Jesus. If we don't become willing to practice that humility ourselves, to begin to risk vulnerability, to move into the kind of deep relationship and intimacy that is required here, then we're also going to miss that gate. We're going to miss the trailhead to the way. We'll never know where the way is, let alone be able to actually take it, to follow it. Christians have been taught, as I alluded to before, theologically, that Jesus is the one who does all the heavy lifting. That's the idea of the vicarious atonement on the cross. Not only that, we're told that we can't do anything because we were born into original sin. And depending on the denomination, you know, either that means complete and total depravity, a gulf between us and God that cannot be breached in any way except through a perfect sacrifice and a covering of the blood. That makes us completely passive in this whole endeavor. There's nothing that we can do except believe. Say we believe, come under this covering, and then wait for death or the rapture. This is damaging to Jesus' message. We've been taught this way. And I admit that it's an oversimplification to try to roll out Western Christian theology in this way. But I'll tell you what, it has the practical effect of making us passive in this relationship with God, in this relationship with life. It causes us to just sit back and to say, yes, I've entered the right faith. Yes, I believe in the right Savior. But it doesn't cause us to take the dive into the way, that tumultuous way that Jesus says is what takes us to oneness with the Father. If we just feel that we can passively, passively accept salvation by belief, then everything goes in another direction. Jesus specifically said that if we believed in him, we could and we would do the things that he is doing, the things that, he, that we see him doing. And he said even greater things than these. And he says that we would need to do those things if we are going to have this oneness with life, with spirit, this experience of kingdom, that we would have to submit to being impelled and exhausted and frightened on this inward journey that is the only way to the Father, the only way that strips away everything that is false so that we can finally apprehend what is true. But as horrible as that may sound to you, just as Jesus was administered to by angels and by God's Spirit in the wilderness, we will be too. We're not left alone as we go on this journey. But we have to take the journey. 
And we have to take the risk before we find the ministration along the way. And this is something that few of us are willing to do, which is why Jesus says, few go by this way. That's not just few going to heaven, but few find themselves here in this life fully connected, fully one with God, fully able to live relationship as Jesus lives it. We desperately want to find that kinder and gentler way. (laughs) We want to find the way of ascent only, right? And our prosperity-oriented churches emphasize the ascent at the expense of any descent, any stripping away of the source of our fears. And those fears are what create our unconscious core beliefs that are working us and keeping us limited and keeping us apart from each other, which is why they need to be worked through. And that can only be done with work. If we stay in this place, we end up staying bisha which is translated as evil, but really means unripe, right? Remember? It means immature. It means unable to perform to our specifications, to really fully be human if we haven't gone through this work. Because without doing the deep and healing work that we're talking about here, we're not going to be balanced. We're not going to be emotionally regulated. We're not going to be present enough to be able to follow Jesus on this way, to have the kind of of deep and connective human relationships that Jesus had with his friends. And we'll keep blaming others for our failures and for our problems. We're going to keep looking for cures. We're going to keep looking for saviors to save us. How many of you have looked for a diet pill that would just be able to just do it like that so that you didn't have to go through all the stuff, right? Wouldn't it be nice if there was one of those? How many of you are reading books and going after podcasts? Uh, You know, I remember when The Secret came out and everybody thought, oh, that's it. That's the secret. This is the way to prosperity. You know, there's always one of these coming along every few years. Here's a shortcut. Here's a way to do this. Here's how we can get from A to B without having to go through whatever. But Jesus says there are no shortcuts. Anybody who doesn't go by the door of the sheepfold is a thief and a robber, not someone who has life and can preserve life. We're always looking for someone or something to do for us what we're not willing to do for ourselves. And life doesn't work that way. If we keep ourselves in this state, in this place, then we become prey to those who would lead us and who are looking to lead us. Whether in good faith or not, it really doesn't matter. If we're in the wrong place, those who we allow to lead us aren't going to take us where Jesus is trying to take us. And this is where we get into the next passage for today. Matthew 7, starting at verse 15. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them, these false prophets, by their fruit. 
Now, of course, in his time, Jesus is alluding to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the religious lawyers of, of their day. And there's brilliant imagery going on here on several levels all at once. First of all, he's talking about sheep. Now, sheep to the ancient world and especially to the Jews and the Hebrews was a staple of life. It was, it was the, one of the bulwarks of their survival. And the sheep operated on so many different levels, you know. And so sheeps were ubiquitous. People knew about the sheeps. They were a symbol of innocence. They were a symbol of sincerity. They were a symbol of harmlessness and a symbol of submission to the people all at the same time. <coughs> and so we've made such a big deal about the Anavim and Talia in here. Talia mean the, being the word for child, but also the word for a domestic slave or servant. And when Jesus says, be like this child, be Talia, he's saying not only take on the attributes of the child, but also the attributes of the servant, because the servant is the one who still has volition. The servant can still make a choice. child can't help what he or she is, but a servant certainly can. And the Anavim are those who are marginalized and those who have realized they don't have any means of support except to rely fully on God and remain grateful. Remain able to enjoy the ride, even though this is where the sheep comes in. The wolves, on the other hand, <coughs> see if I can talk through this, are the top of the food chain, right? They're the pack hunters. They're unclean to, to Jewish dietary laws. And they're also dangerous sheep eaters. <coughs> so like the stones and the loaves that we talked about that look similar from a distance, like the fish and the snake that look similar from a distance. Oh, man, sorry. <coughs> we are the ones who have to discern between what preserves life and what does not. What is a staple of life and what destroys life. Thanks, buddy. Hopefully this will get where I need to go. Thanks for the support out there. <laughs> We need to be able to discern between what can preserve life and take us where we want to go and what cannot. This is a theme of Jesus as well. And he brings it up here again with the wolves and the sheep. The Pharisees of his day are all about outward forms. They're all about the law. They're all about ritual and practice and performing all that flawlessly in order to be accepted, in order to be at the highest rung of righteousness. In other words, ascending to God through their own power and through their own control and through systems that they themselves set up. And now they require everybody else to do it as well. This is the source of their power over the people. No one could understand the system of laws that they had created. Everybody had to go through them to find out if they were okay or not. Just like we have to go through lawyers to help us to decipher our legal code here. Same difference. Same thing going on here. The Pharisees were all about outward forms in their dress. They proved their righteousness through their phylacteries, which were leather boxes that held scriptures, both on their forehead and on their right arms. And they wore them over large, huge things. They're just supposed to be small, just reminders. They wore them huge so that everybody saw how righteous they were. And their prayer shawls, the talit, was made of sheep wool or actual sheep skin. And they made sure they were extra long. And they made sure the knots at the corners, the teat seats, were 
overlong. And everything was for show. Everything was to show the people how righteous they were. Ascending to God through their own power, through their own control. And so the sheepskin became the code for men who are hiding under the sheep's clothing, who are also destroyers of life. Jesus calls them hypocrites. How do we discern between the difference? Jesus is saying, beware of these men. They're not bringing you anything that has life. They look like sheep. They're wearing the sheep's skin. But inside they're ravenous wolves. How do we discern? He says, by the fruits. Take a look at the fruits. Like always breeds like. Figs are going to breed figs, not thorns and thistles. A good tree is going to bring good fruit. Remember, good, taba, ripe, able to sustain life, as opposed to the bad tree, bisha, unripe, unable to sustain life. This is the main idea here. What is actually taking us on this road to life? We can't see what's inward. We can't take a look at the motive and intent of a person. But we can always see the effect that the person has on us, on relationships around them, and the closest relationships especially. So even if the emotive or the intent is good, is loving, what is the effect, Jesus is saying? Take a look at that. Take a look at the fruit. Because not all the Pharisees were hypocrites. Not all the Pharisees were bad. Many of the Pharisees had the people's best intentions at heart. But as long as they are following these outward forms only, as long as they are following just obey the law, continue to do all the ritual practice, and you will be accepted by God, then they are not taking the people toward life. They are limiting the people. They're cutting them off at the source of their God. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. They will not be able to help the people to negotiate this gate and this way to father and kingdom that Jesus is talking about. You know, today it's exactly the same. You know, we, churches and religion has gotten a real bad rap, Christianity especially, and for good reason, but not all churches are bad. You know, Christianity is good. It's just taken a few left turns at Albuquerque and gotten off track. And there are some really good and loving pastors. And there are some charlatans and some predators as well. It's exactly the same as it was in Jesus' day. Religions, churches, pastors, leaders are a mixed bag. And they will always be a mixed bag. How are we going to know the difference? Which is which? You know, there are so many of us. And I remember when I was still studying for the pastorate, People would come up to me and talk to me at the church where Marion and I were, and some of them were in the church for 30 or 40 years, and they would tell me, I still don't know if God really loves me. I still really don't know if I'm saved. After 40 years, you don't know if you're saved? See, this to me was absolutely tragic, and it spurred me on more and more to say, if we don't get this notion of the Father's love, this is the result no matter how loving the pastor is, no, how, no matter how well-intentioned is the ministry, if it doesn't lead with the Father's love, if it doesn't get across the first notion of the allness of the Father's love, 
then we're wolves in sheep's clothing because we're not preserving life. We are not taking the people to the source of life that will allow them to experience life as kingdom and enjoy the ride. To get the healing that they need to be able to have relationship that is not so dysfunctional that it ceases to exist. They're always going to be a little dysfunctional, but yeah, 51%, right? We just got to get there. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. People have followed their leaders and wonder why their lives still look the same, why things haven't changed, why certain strongholds still exist, why relationships are still so dysfunctional, why haven't things changed? That's the fruit. That's where Jesus is saying, look at that, because it's going to be impossible to just look at the ministry or look at the pastor or look at the church and be able to tell. The temple looked beautiful, shining on its hill to all the Jews, and yet Jesus unmasks it the way he unmasked the fig tree as being barren inside and having nothing to sustain life. Just a house of thieves is the way he put it. This is what he's trying to get us to be able to do as well. Look at the fruit. Where is your life going? Are you still fighting the same battles that you were fighting 10, 20 years ago? Then maybe you need to look in a different direction. Jesus would say anything that we follow that doesn't have the effect of kingdom is false. Not evil the way we think of evil, but bisha in the sense of unripe. Not able to take us to life. And more deeply... If we are still blaming the leaders in our life, the church in our life, or whomever that we see as the source of our misfortune, then guess what? It's we who are bisha. We who are unripe and not able to take ourselves to the next level. And we're going to remain bisha. We're going to remain unripe until we become willing to engage in vulnerability to take the risk of vulnerability in that tumultuous journey that we're trying to take. We have got to begin to see that we have a part to play in this. We are not potted plants here in our own salvation. We have a part to play. We have a partnership with God. And I know the first time I said that, it, it raised a lot of eyebrows and ire because it's like, how can you assume that you have a partnership with God? God is God and you... You know what? God gives us the partnership. Therefore, it's not arrogant to say we need to assume our role in this partnership. Jesus tells us as much over and over again. Yes, there is a part you need to play. There is a partnership with your God. There's a partnership with your church, with your faith, with your religion, with your pastor, with anybody with whom you are traveling. It's a partnership. We need to dive in. We need to take our own journey. We need to stop waiting to be saved and just take the hand that is always and already there for us to take and always has been. I want to say we were born saved. And that may raise a lot of theological eyebrows. See, there's some right there. But we were born saved in the sense that we were born loved by God. We were born accepted by God. God can't love us anymore, and God can't love us any less because God's love is perfect. Whether we're newborn or whether we're 67 years old, 
We are equally loved, but we're not equal recipients of that love. And that's the rub. That's the difference. That's where Jesus is trying to get us to go. We are loved as completely and as fully as we can ever be at every moment of our lives. And we are born with everything that we need or could ever obtain to be able to take this journey to the reception of that love, to the actual apprehension of that love, to understand it, to feel it, to let it become the driving force in our lives. But we forget, don't we? We lose the sense of it as we get older. We're born with it. I remember when our kids were really, really small, sometimes they'd be staring up at a corner of the ceiling and just staring intently. And Marion and I would look at each other, still seeing angels. Yeah. What was that all about? This is a theme that has returned over and over again. I want to read you just a couple of passages, stanzas from a poem called Ode to Intimations of Immortality by William Wordsworth in the 19th century, a great English poet. Just, I know that the language is a little dense, but just listen to it and see if you can understand what he's saying here and where he's trying to take us. He says, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. Shades of the prison house begin to close upon the growing boy, but he beholds the light and whence it flows and sees it in his joy. The youth who daily farther from the east must travel is still nature's priest, and by the vision splendid is on his way attended. At length the man perceives it die away and fade into the light of common day. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. See, that's the truth of it. And I don't say that because William Wordsworth did. I say that because Jesus did. He said, that's who we are. We just need to remember who we are. Jesus' way is the way of remembering Remembering who we are. Remembering who we have always been. And who is that? The beloved. We are the beloved. We are as beloved as David was beloved. We are as beloved as Jesus, who the Spirit said from the heavens, this is my beloved son. We have to remember that. We have to Religio that. Religion comes from two Latin words, which means to religio, to rebind, to reconnect. We need to remember, we need to rebind that love, that connection. And when we do that, we've got it all. At that point, we are born again into that same connection that we had at the beginning. We are saved again. We are healed. And now we can proceed. 
But this way of Jesus is not a straight way. It just doesn't go straight up. It has to lead down to truth first, stripping away everything that is false before it can move back up to the healing, to the remembering of our clouds of glory, who we are, where we came from. Jesus is always asking us, begging us to engage the way. As difficult as it may be, as scary as it seems at first, he's asking us to engage. But at the same time, he's also perfectly patient and always waiting for us to become ready to do just that. That's it. Are we ready to engage? And if not, what will it take to get us ready? God is always patient and waiting. The moment is always now. But it is our choice. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for making this our choice, even though so often we'd rather have it be yours. But our choice means that we can love as you love, freely. That our love can be every bit as engaging, real, connecting, because we can freely choose it. But at the same time, the choice is frightening. So, Father, once again, we call on you to continue to help us to see more clearly our way forward, to more and more detach from the things that we're clinging to so ferociously because they seem like our salvation and they seem like life and they seem like security, but to begin to prefer them less, to begin to see them as crutches that we can let go of and carry on so that we can turn and really rely on you, really rely on your ministrations to take us where we really want to go. Help us to break those connections to the things that we're just clinging to so that we can find the connection in you that is so much deeper. Thank you, Father, for everything that you do every moment to safeguard us, to care for us, and to love us. Never let us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, his shem, his essence, his character. And not only do we pray it, Father, but we want to live it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.